Hello and welcome to the Intentional Clinician Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Krauss, Licensed Professional Counselor. I am so excited to be able to speak to Rick Miller today. We're going to be discussing many topics, including men in therapy, what it means to be a man, how masculinity affects the greater culture here in the United States, working with gay men and heterosexual men, and many other topics related to this. Before we jump into the interview, I wanted to let everyone know that I am now an EMDR consultant in training through the EMDR International Association, and I will be hosting groups for people that are wanting to go past EMDR training and become EMDR IA certified, or EMDRIA certified, and I can provide hours for that, both individually and in group. Um, I'm going to be doing some groups online, also in person in Grand Rapids, and possibly also in Scottsdale, Arizona, based on demand. So if you're looking into that, I will have the information in the show notes. A little bit about Rick Miller. Rick Miller is a psychotherapist and author. He has served on the faculty of the International Society of Hypnosis, the Milton Erickson Foundation, the Brief Therapy Conference, the Society for Clinical and Experimental Hypnosis, the American Society of Clinical Hypnosis, the American Group Psychotherapy Association, the Couples Conference, and Harvard Medical School. He is the author of Unwrapped, Integrative Therapy with Gay Men, The Gift of Presence, and Mindfulness Tools for Gay Men in Therapy. His Psychology Today blog is Unwrapped, Mind, Body, Wisdom, and the Modern Gay Man. He is also the executive director and executive producer for Gay Sons and Mothers, a nonprofit organization that explores and chronicles the complex bond between gay sons and their mothers. He was awarded the greatest contribution to social work practice by the Massachusetts chapter of the National Associations of Social Work in 2018. For more information on Rick, I will have his websites and social media contacts in the show notes. Now for the interview. All right, Rick Miller, I'm so glad to have you on the Intentional Clinician Podcast. Welcome. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Absolutely. So I'm very excited to get into our topic today. Um, lots of different topics, but all centered around the subject of men and men in therapy and masculinity and uh, gay men and therapy and actually also interactive experiential therapy, which we'll get into as well. Mm-hmm. And before we get into it, I know I just wanted to maybe brief our listeners um, about how we actually met because you're in Cape Cod. I am in Cape Cod and Boston. I split my time each week in both places. Oh, that sounds awesome. I did it's not know that you spent life. your time. It's horrible, yeah. <laughs> and uh, we did meet in Phoenix in yes. 2019 in December at the 13th Erickson Congress, which I found out, the International Erickson Congress, there was a lot of people there from Europe and elsewhere, uh, apparently the last one for some reason. Right. And because they're focusing on the evolution of psychotherapy, the brief therapy conference and the couples conference, I believe, is their main and their Erickson trainings there in Phoenix. Uh, And you you were there. So can you let us know a little bit about how that went? Well, it went great. And one of the great things about one of my workshops is that you were there. And I think it was about welcoming men into treatment. Uh, So it's it's a topic that's important to me. Um, how men are treated in the field of psychotherapy, how men are viewed. And um, so here we are as a result. 
Absolutely. I thought it was very eye-opening for me because uh, you really engaged the audience and threw out a bunch of interesting, provocative statements about how men are viewed, um, not only in the culture, uh, in, in the United States especially, specifically, but also if men engage in therapy or if they don't engage in therapy. So I don't want to rehash that presentation because people need to come see you at a next, the next conference. That would be but great. I want yeah. to let you talk about whatever you want and kind of talking a little bit about the subject of men in therapy because um, I don't know if this is general knowledge still, but there, there is a stereotype in the culture of men possibly being resistant to therapy right. unless their partner or whoever they're with or boss tells them, I think you need therapy. So let me comment on that, because if men are resistant about going to therapy, then we really need to pay attention to what that means. And that's a little bit of the provocative talk, talking that I was doing at the workshop that you came to, which is that if we want to effectively work with men as psychotherapists and medical providers, or if spouses and family members want to understand men effectively, they need to understand why men are the way they are instead of simply reacting in an impatient way. And so what I said in that workshop is that sometimes clinicians are impatient with their male clients because they're not getting it. They're not having access to their feelings as quickly as the therapist may want them to and or spouses may be dragging their husbands into therapy and they're impatient because they're not communicating or getting it as much as they want them to. And really, how do men learn to be communicative? How do men learn to feel what they're feeling, especially being raised in a society where we're taught men are supposed to be stoic and strong, and there isn't a lot of room for being emotional and tender in certain ways. And frequently when boys are growing up, they're, they're told, don't act like a girl. You're acting like a girl right now. Be a man. Man up. So it's an interesting topic. And I am a gay man, as you know. And so yes. growing up male has been an interesting journey because I never really thought I was a real man. And then at a certain point in my career success, I realized I am a real man and I have to own my own masculinity and the power that I have as a result of that masculinity. And um, it's been an interesting, hard journey in some ways to measure up after feeling like I haven't measured up as a real man all these years. And I would say that the pressure of masculinity for men is that very experience, not measuring up, not feeling like one fits in, and uh, being able to be the man that one ought to be sometimes comes up short. For individuals I there was a lot of rich things you said in that so I took some notes because oh, I think there's at least two paths I would love to take this conversation and probably will but it's a matter of which one first okay and I have uh, a bad habit of saying too many things at once <laughs> oh no keep that up people love <laughs> okay. that in the podcast Good. world because this is Good. this is an unedited conversation yeah <clears throat> or slightly edited conversation. right so the topic at hand that people clicked on was men in therapy and a little bit about the culture. So I definitely want to hear your story, but I might save that because people might be interested in that for the next next 
part of the podcast okay. and about how you personally went through your own transformation. I want to hear about that. But first, I want to just comment a little bit about what you kind of delved into, which is this sort of unspoken contract or, or maybe reflection from media or reflection from uh, your elders that men need to exude a certain type of energy. Um, yeah. I, it reminds me uh, to that the ideal man in movies that I saw, the one who was mm -hmm. respected, when I grew up, my, my dad loves old black and white movies. He, mm -hmm. he, he abhors new media. Yeah. So all I was watching was old movies, and and the masculine stereotype was John Wayne. Um, the masculine stereotype was Kirk Douglas. Kind of, yeah. he he would say some things, some choice things, very mm -hmm. intelligent, but just mostly locked it up until he was done punching the heck out of somebody, and mm -hmm. then he would, you know, uh, win the prize and save the day, and also was articulate. And then there was there was another one, James Stewart, who played a lot of characters. And his characters, unless it was an Alfred Hitchcock movie, but most of his characters in his like heartwarming movies that people have seen, the family movies like It's a Wonderful Life, and um, uh -huh. some of the other ones, he he played actually kind of a Renaissance man, where he would be this tough guy, but he also had this sensitive side. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. Then all of a sudden, the '80s happened, and I was born early '80s, and like uh -huh. Rambo and Sylvester Stallone, <laughs> and it was just like. I felt, and, and then growing up watching television and listening to the radio, there was the man show and all of these like more and more and more masculine, like how much more masculine can we get until we're a caveman, like bashing people over the head. And sort of this, this it, it, almost a joke in our culture now uh, with my friends in big cities. Uh, I've lived in Chicago, Phoenix, and now I live in Grand Rapids, which mm -hmm. is really a big city, but it's a medium sized city. And people make jokes when they hear somebody step on the gas with yeah. their car and rev uh -huh. it up. Right. Or have a giant lifted truck that's never been off road, mm -hmm. and they make a joke like, "Uh oh, daddy issues," or mm -hmm. "Boy, look out, there's overcompensation going on." And it's yeah. sort of this like kind of ribbing of men uh, who are maybe just trying to express their the, their masculinity in a way that is well, it's direct in one way, but indirect in another way. And so, I just I, I love bringing up things that are a little little odd because I know you'll have a, something great to say about that but so growing up the movies the media these expectations so I was confused as all right hell I won't right, get I was into that completely well, well I'm going to get into it I'll tell I'll I'll delve more into me when you tell your story but just as a little aside as you maybe you could talk about but as a as a child just um I didn't think war was cool mm -hmm. I, I wasn't into guns right Right. Uh, I did have a BB gun and I felt bad about killing some animals. So I stopped. Okay. Right. And I got into skateboarding instead, which was, I guess, a way of, you know, being masculine. Cause I also played the piano, which apparently wasn't masculine at the time. Right. No, no, no. no Billy Joel. And, you know, cause I guess Elton John, I don't know who knows, but right. like I played the piano and, and that was like, Oh, play the piano. Why don't you play the electric guitar? You know, that was, I used to get that. Why do you play that? I also played drums because that was masculine. Like, I feel like I did things to try to fit some stereotype that I wasn't ever able to fit. Well, that's and an like, interesting point about masculinity, yes. which is what's expected of you or us. And right. what do we do because we want to, and what do we do because we are supposed to. And, you know, there's something about authenticity that's 
pretty sexy and pretty healthy. And when we're able to do what we want and we choose that for ourselves, it makes life pretty damn exciting. I agree. I think it's also difficult to know how to do that if you don't have an example. Correct. So I was thinking about, I was making the joke about the trucks and the, yeah. and the sort of like really rocky type guy. Yeah. And maybe he's just, he, for five seconds in the movie is vulnerable. The most of the movie, he's just kicking ass. Right. Can you talk a little bit about what's going on with that? And also my read is that there aren't really good examples in our culture, not as many good examples, maybe in our personal lives. I don't know. So what I, what I was thinking when you were talking about the guy in the truck is a number of conversations that I've had with people who drive big trucks oh. that love the power of showing the world how strong they are. Mm. And they can do that with a, a loud truck and a muffler that makes a lot of noise. And who are they doing it for? It's like, are they doing it for others or are they doing it for themselves? And, and what is the message there anyways? Um, but I suspect that a lot of uber strong masculine men who are trying to prove a point were taught that that's how you be a man. Uh, okay. And my guess is that these same people are struggling internally to, to be expressive, to be soft, to be caring and nurturing in an open way that is acceptable in the realm of traditional masculinity and I frequently have women coming into my psychotherapy office saying, my husband doesn't know how to communicate. He doesn't know how to say what he's feeling. And then simultaneously, they will say, I want my husband to be strong. I want him to take charge. I want him to take care of me. And I get really pissed when he doesn't. So there's almost a mixed message towards men about what they're supposed to be doing. I could not agree more. Yeah. Uh, so that is the tough thing. And actually, a lot of male clients I work with, I am working on two things, uh, depending on the guy. And it's always a percentage of which ones more we're working yeah. on more. Yes. One is, how do you show up in somewhat of a traditionally masculine role of taking action and acting, and acting uh, thoughtfully and intentionally? Correct. So that yep. people in your workspace respect you, uh, so that you don't come off kind of like an adolescent. Yeah. Um, yeah. This whole thing of of talking something to death or pleading something to death, or on the other on the other extreme, uh, yelling to get your way, bullying, this sort of either passive or aggressive stance, working yeah. on an assertive stance. Yes. Um, and it's confusing for men because they found that in certain, maybe with their upbringing or in school or with their parents, they got their way by being one or the other. That's right. They kind of yeah. being this victim, like I'm a little boy and nobody, I, I'm a victim and you should help me. Or <laughs> I'm going to kick your ass and F you parents or mm -hmm. whatever. And I'm a right. bully instead yeah. of learning how to be assertive. And I don't, I don't, I, I think that there's mixed messages there, but then simultaneously, how do you also communicate when, for some weird reason, communicating and being soft or vulnerable and honest has been 
somehow labeled as feminine. Right. And, right. and, and also, not, whether or not it's feminine or masculine, if you go really deep into psychology, we both have, everyone has qualities of both. Correct. We have to be able to balance those or else yep. we're out of balance. If yes. we have some feminine energy, so to speak, mm -hmm. yep. we're going to be missing half of the, half of the perspective. Yeah. And obviously people are geared a little bit more towards one or the other most of the time, but how do you balance that? So with the man, it's like, okay, yes, we want you to be strong. We want you to, to feel like a man or whatever that means to you, because it does mean something. But then how do you then balance that with your partner or your boss or your wife or whoever that wants you to tell them what you're feeling? How do you, and then without feeling emasculated, how do you do that? And so I think you hit the nail earlier, which was authenticity and honesty, which is, it's actually something that can be learned. It can be learned. And it, I think it's a community project that when you think about how we learn, it's not just going to therapy. Mm -hmm. We learn from living our day-to-day -day lives and hanging out with people who teach us things or who we watch and we respect and we decide to emulate. And so I always tell my clients, my male clients, who do you admire? What traits do you admire in them? Who are some men that you respect because they're able to be well-rounded, they're good communicators, who, you know, that kind of thing. I was also thinking when you were talking about the experience of being a gay male therapist. And sometimes when I have new clients coming into my office, I don't know if they know that I'm gay and are they going to be okay with that? And of course, anyone can Google me and it's kind of obvious, but who does and who doesn't? So for a while, I would find myself feeling insecure and vulnerable with new clients, especially men. Will they be homophobic? Will they be okay? And I finally just realized I'm going to just be myself. And maybe in the last 30 years, one, one or two people have left not saying that they're uncomfortable with my being gay, but it was kind of obvious that that's what it was. But not many people care because they're coming into therapy for their own reasons. And clearly, whatever it is that I'm doing is meeting their needs. So that's one thing I wanted to say. The other thing I wanted to say is that I talk a lot to people about the ideal masculinity is owning strength, owning power, and mm. owning expressiveness and vulnerability and doing that all in one. And I, I jokingly, but also seriously say, gay men have a lot to teach heterosexual men, and heterosexual men have a lot to teach gay men about owning power and kind of coming together like that is a very, profound thing. And what's also exciting and interesting is how the world of gender gender is changing these days. So the whole notion of masculinity is shifting and changing in, in wonderful ways that we don't even know for the future. Um, as people, transgender people are uh, transitioning gender, um, they're, they're coming into a part of themselves, which is adding to the world of masculinity. A lot of richness there. Again, yes. I took multiple notes of choosing an adventure, but I'm going to start because I really want to get into the part about your experience as a gay man yeah. and being a therapist as well yeah. very soon. But I, I, there's a few more concepts I want our audience okay. to hear, which yeah. is the owning it factor. Yeah. Uh, 
owning your power, owning your strength, mm -hmm. and owning your vulnerability. Yes. What a wonderful triad of, of, of things if a man can do that. Because when you don't own your power, the power is either you feel powerless or you're trying to overpower. Yes. And, if, and go ahead. Sorry. Owning is an internal experience that you can tell me I need to do something, but owning power means I have to learn how I'm going to own it how it's going to live inside of me, how I'm going to find a way to feel a sense of strength and power and how I'm going to sit with that inside of my own body and then how I'm going to position myself and share that with the external world. I love it because that is the part about what I call growing up. And I did mm -hmm. a podcast recently on the second half of life with mm -hmm. men. Yeah. And and I think it's starting to become comfortable in your own skin. Despite That's a really good feeling, isn't it? Yes, it's wonderful. Yeah. Despite all the cultural baggage, your own baggage, right. whatever weird and strange thoughts come to you in the middle of the night about your, your life. Right. I think as an adolescent, though, and, and as a young boy, people, men really, really struggle with owning their power. They don't know what to do with it. Right. And so they either hide, I don't know, it's the extremes. I think that's what we, we, we experiment. We go through all spectrums. I remember hiding from my power and trying to like, I remember hanging out with girls at the lunch table because I was like sick of guys for a while. Because like, I was sick of being punched in the arm. Uh, yeah. I was sick of the same joke. So I just sat at the girl table and not the girl table, but like where more girls were. And I remember getting flack for that. Right. I was like, they're having more conversations and no one's punching me in the arm. And this feels, and then I went back to the guy table later. But, uh, um, you know, or getting in a fight. I remember getting in a fight and overdoing my power and, and then the confusion, because I also think parents, if you have them are, are sort of, I don't know, share, you know, doing some of the emotional work for you. Mm -hmm. And so then how do we individuate, break off from our parents and be our own person and own our power, strength and vulnerability but yet still have a relationship with our parents with boundaries and then learn if we didn't get taught as a child how to have boundaries, which most yeah. a lot of people did not. Uh, yeah. How do we have boundaries in our relationships with men? Mm -hmm. How do we, in a way that's healthy, and how do we have boundaries with women? And, and trans, again, now transgender is coming into the whole fold as right. well as a, as a uh, conversation that it is shifting our, our awareness of the fact that um, these are masculinity and femininity are, are fluid concepts we've labeled them yeah. as a pole. And you can see that if you read Jungian work and the fairy tales, you can see, uh, you know, that, that there are these long standing traits and archetypes that are interesting mm -hmm. to explore, but that we don't need to be afraid of being too much one or the other. Um, we but have what to happens if you have a parent, like a father, if you're a man and you have a father who's so strict in his definition of masculinity that he doesn't allow you the latitude to be who you are. I'm thinking of one friend in particular whose father was like that, and he grew up in such a rigid subculture that it informs him as a man, as a husband, and now as a father. And I hear him sometimes talking about how he is with his children, and it makes me a little nervous because he doesn't even realize that he's 
incorporated the norms that his father has taught them without questioning, is that okay? Is it what I want? Is it how I want to raise my child and how I want to be? So the definition of masculinity is kind of carrying down generation to generation without being fully questioned. Oh my goodness. And I think that's a lot of what we deal with in our office. Absolutely. Yeah. I was taught implicitly and Mm -hmm. explicitly possibly, this is what you do as a man and this is what you don't. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not, I've never been a woman, so I have no idea what, if women are taught explicitly, I know they're definitely taught implicitly, like look Mm -hmm. at the other women around you, what are you doing? But I I feel like men also get this like lesson sometimes. If you have a, if you have a father or grandfather who's very into what they believe it is to be a man from their generation, you'll actually get a list. I remember I got a list. So I got a list. list? Oh my God. Now it's getting real personal. Um, Well, I'm going to be straight up. It was, you can't be gay. That was on there. Mm -hmm. You have to be, um, you have to side with the more masculine political candidate. Yeah. Uh, you, um, these are things I actually heard. Yeah. Uh, you war is a good thing because yeah. it stops bad people and evil people. Wow. Yes. Ooh. Instead of war is hell, which it uh-huh. is. I heard that later. There's some yeah. transformation. Um, I can't remember. Um, oh, certain certain clothing items. Yeah. You know. Oh, that's um, a good one. Yeah. We're we're looking and not maybe manly, but just didn't look right. Well, I grew, I grew up in the 60s and 70s. Oh, and there were tell me. Things that you could not wear and colors you couldn't wear. I was made fun of and humiliated because of certain things that I wore. I mean, the time was so strict. And I look at men now, the, the style that is permissible is so different from, from when I was growing up that, that I wish I had that freedom. But it sounds like you didn't have that freedom either. Well, I definitely rebelled against all of that. So thus, uh-huh. that's uh-huh. maybe how I got to my, my position now. I've, I've tried to not fit in a box my yeah. whole life, which is why maybe in some ways it's easy for me to, I, to identify with lots of different groups of people. Yeah. Uh, but also, I definitely got flack for that from, you know, you're never a prophet in your hometown, you know, that yeah. whole, whole thing. Uh, <laughs> you know, I definitely got flack for not fitting into boxes and got, name called and I had to develop a, a thick skin. So mm-hmm. we'll, we'll, we'll get into that. But I want to, I want to, the listeners, I, they know a little bit about me. I want to know more about Rick. I, I want to know about your experience because you have a, a wealth of knowledge, including a book and or I don't know, how many books have you written? Two books. Two yeah. Books. Two books and um, a, a multiple pages of conferences you pre- presented at. Yeah. So I want to know a little bit about how you became an expert. I'll say that. You didn't say it. I'm saying mm-hmm. it. You're an expert on men and therapy and, and also experiential therapy and different things like that. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about you and your background. Uh, the, the place I'm going to start as you're putting me up on a pedestal is that growing up gay, I was so secretive and learned how to conceal myself, which is not an unusual story for gay boys, because it's bad. It's bad to be gay. So even though I had come out, and even though I had come out in my field as a psychotherapist, I was still living in secrecy. And the way 
that I grew was to be a private practice practitioner. And guess what? I worked alone with my door closed all day. Mm. So the feedback that I was getting was from my clients that I was a good therapist, but I was also doing it by hiding myself from the rest of the world. So my one regret, which links to masculinity, is that I didn't get myself out there at an earlier point in time in my career because I could have done even more. So I had a mentor about 12 years ago. So if I'm 58, I was in my mid-40s. And he said, you should write a book about working with gay men. And I'm thinking, I can't do that. I've, I've never written. And lo and behold, I wrote, a book, I wrote a book about working with gay men and doing hypnosis and mindfulness exercises with gay men. And it forced me to be in the limelight. So now I am no longer working with my door shut. I'm now in the teaching world and in the conference world, speaking to large groups. And I panicked. I didn't panic about public speaking. I panicked about what is it that I have to say? Who gives a crap? And what do I know? So the door blew open and I had to learn to embrace and accept that people do want to hear what I have to say. And that, as I referenced earlier, I am a real man. And maybe I'm not the mold of a real man that super strict masculine men have. But what I've also learned is that part of being a real man is feeling strong and confident in that what I have to say is well-received. And so our field, the field of psychotherapy and mental health, can be a very open field. And I've met men who have been so accepting of me that it has been a kind of a journey of healing of my own where I realize I'm good enough. I don't have to keep my door shut. I don't have to keep private anymore. So it's been a real kind of profound period of, of growth and excitement. That being said, I also want to say at the same time that frequently I get a very low turnout to my workshops when I'm presenting about gay men because a lot of clinicians think, well, I already know all I need to know about being gay, so I don't need to go. And I think that secretly some clinicians are a little homophobic, so they don't show up. Um, what was interesting when I met you was that the turnout speaking about masculinity was greater than my other workshops, but there were less men in the room than women. Oh, that is very true. Actually, I think I could count on one hand how many men. Probably, were in the room. probably less than one hand. And I was delighted that you were there and I was delighted by your participation. Uh, and I often wonder well, where are the men? Do they not need this? Do they feel as though they already know what they need to know? Uh, it's just, it's an interesting phenomenon in the world of mental health that despite choosing this field, a lot of men in the field are traditionally masculine like everyone else in the rest of the world. Goodness. I, I want to get back to your story, but here's a little, here's a little sub segue. Yeah. I, I remember. When I was in graduate school, 2005 to 2007, in Chicago, and we had this, I don't know, it was just some sort of speaker-invited people for the day, multiple people that had graduated from the school, the Chicago School of Professional Psychology, where I went. Mm -hmm. And this guy came in the room, and he was an older man, and he said, 
we are going to, and we are already in a crisis of mental health for men. Wow. And if we don't start addressing the mental health needs of men and promoting self-esteem in boys and learning how to use communication skills and da da da, all this in our communities, we are going to have a gigantic political, socioeconomic, and world crisis. Wow. And the United States needs to take the lead. And I will tell you, the people in the room were shocked oh and did not like it. Really? Oh, I remember. I oh. was there. And I liked it because I thought, my God, I think he's right. right. I've been listening to this Rush right. Limbaugh. Right. Not really, but I heard this Rush Limbaugh guy. He's popular. I heard part of his radio show. And I was like, what the hell is this? Wow. But he's got listeners. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And um, he said this. And, and, and because... Rightly so. Women have been discriminated against and abused and tortured and enslaved and got, everything has been put on women for you know thousands of years. And so there's this sort of return to you know let's foster in young women, let's help them uh, be assertive and independent and um, be who they want to be. And that's been a trend in psychotherapy and and the world, especially the United States. And it's a good trend. Mm-hmm. And so it was like, you know, we, and we had, and I think a lot of the conference had been focusing on it and certainly it's been brought up in our grad program that that was a good thing. But I almost felt that it was like this black and white binary situation when he brought up the crisis of men, because people were like, what are you talking about? Like men rule the world and men are in charge. And he's like, and he said, and I remember he took questions because there was a few female professors that kind of mm-hmm. got a little yeah heated. And he said, I know, but that's why we need them mentally healthy and we need them to work and to learn how to use their power appropriately and to be able to include women and have a conversation between men and women. We need men and women to work together on the world's problems. Um, You know, there's an increasingly, uh, most of the suicides of adolescents, I think it's 86% I last read were males, not not girls. Yeah. And, and we know from the other statistics, which I don't have on me, that one was a true statistic, this one is a general statistic, is that women are on more antidepressant medications than men. Yeah. I read that the other day. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's true. And maybe even women are in more psychotherapy. I'm not really sure, but I bet you that possibly is the case. Probably. Uh, and, and, and for good reason. They have a lot of obstacles in this world. But I, I, I think that guy was right. Because I think right now in 2020... We are in a strange postmodern cultural fight over what it means to be a man, and that's affecting our economics, that's affecting our, our friendships, our families, our, our politics, maybe. Yes. I'm not sure if that's correct, but I might be. Um, well, it's and funny that some people in the room didn't understand what they didn't was, get it. You misunderstood the message. And yes. for you, it just rang, rang into you, and you got it. Well, it rang into me, and I've been thinking about this, and I want to get back to your thing, but I've been thinking about this for a long time, and my listeners will know that um, I'm working on uh, probably re-up again this year, try to get a grant to start a national violence prevention hotline. Wow. And, and who am I targeting but men? Of course. Because right. that's usually who's sh- shooting up a place or yeah. getting in trouble for domestic violence. So um, I think we've got to find a way as therapists to be open to men, to make psychotherapy and counseling attractive to men of all types, not just the intelligentsia okay, yeah. 
or right. men who are maybe more open to being uh, vulnerable or communicative. And not just the men who are coming in here because their partner's pissed off or right. their boss is pissed off. We've got to get men thinking, you know what? If you, you engage in psychotherapy, you will become more of who you are. You will become more of the man you want to be. Correct. And you will become more powerful because you're balanced. I'm a big group person. Um, so I frequently refer men to group therapy because they get an opportunity to be with other people and express themselves and be supported for being real, for being honest, and for being vulnerable, as I was saying earlier. And so when I think about community involvement, the ideal place to send men is to be in, in connected with groups of people who are warm, welcoming, and accepting. So maybe it's not the gun association of a particular neighborhood, um, but where can men learn? Psychotherapy is a great place, but also finding places in the world where there are role models who are, are healthy. I think that's so important. I agree completely because psychotherapy does have some barriers to yes. it, economic, time, etc. So where can we help men in a way that's healthy and doesn't have some political agenda yeah. to it or some special group's agenda and just is trying to embrace the fact that if men are healthy and if men work on their psyche and their their understanding of power and their understanding of masculine, yes. the world will be a better place. And the bonus is that if they're heterosexual, they will have better you know, possible romantic relationships with women. And if right. they're homosexual, they'll have better romantic relationships with men, okay. and they'll have a better workplace because you have to. We're all working amongst one another now. So the as, issue is, it's a hard sell. What? As you're saying this, it makes me want to lead retreats for men all over the place. Well, I was that was something I wrote down because there was this men's movement. I don't know if you know about Robert Bly and uh, Hill, James Hillman in the early '80s. They tried okay. to, and it went all the way to mid '90s. Michael Mead. James Hillman, Robert Bly, um, a few other people. They had some mixed retreats because Marion Woodman went with them on some of them, but it was this men's movement of trying to reclaim what it means to be a man in society in the United States and Canada. Yeah. Um, but I think it's died out, and, and now I don't really know what's out there. And, but I do think the community and the group is actually a much more important, well, it's the first place people could go if we had that. Where are the mentors? Right. That's right. I, I have a mentor who's, mm -hmm. I have actually three mentors, but yeah. one of my mentors is in his 70s and was mm -hmm. been openly gay since he was 22. Yeah. And he's been partnered for 35 years and is a very high position in a certain organization. And, you know, he helped me since I was a young therapist and I've got another mentor who's 75 who's heterosexual and um is just a powerhouse has started uh, support groups for substance abuse uh families dealing with substance abuse all over the united states in i think 35 32 states now mm -hmm. and my other mentor is ericksonian so he's yeah. uh but uh he's not in the club but he's you know he's up there well, right? we all need mentors so and i think you're presenting a model that is something that should be practiced and prescribed way more. And I was giving you my story about being 45 and my mentor saying, writing a book. If I had allowed myself to have a more serious mentor 10 years earlier, 
maybe my life would have been different. And so I'm always encouraging my clients, who do you have in your life? Who do you know? Who do you look up to? Utilize their support. Go to them. Ask for help. People love to support other people. People that have been treated well love to share their emotional wealth with other people. And so being in the position of being a mentor is a really wonderful experience of giving back. So that's one way to change the movement of masculinity. I was also thinking about the fact that we're living in the times of this Me Too era, and people are outraged by men with power who have exploited women. And I've worked with gay men who have exploited men without even realizing that they're doing, doing anything wrong because if they're gay and I'm not a real man, how could I be misusing my power if I don't see myself as powerful? That was a long sentence. But again, we have to go back to the basics. Who's teaching men about power? Where are men learning about how they come across to other people? Where are men being taught how they speak has ramifications? And so the whole notion of community and mentorship is a place to begin working on all of this. Large corporations are encouraging men in positions of power to be powerful and to misuse their power and they're being rewarded for it. But these same people don't have places to go to learn how to be more, sens more sensitive or more aware of how they come across in their communi communication styles to other people. That was very rich. I'll take a little piece of that, which okay. is my James Hillman. I'm a huge James Hillman fan. I read as much as I can, mm -hmm. and I've listened. I, I think I have downloaded every lecture so far that's been released. He says, and this is, this is not a political statement, but it is because political used to mean you know, being involved in the community. Now it means something else. But right. uh, so... <laughs> The, the American experience of the bottom line and money being more valuable than anything is causing misbehavior mm. and power uh, in, in just all sorts of micro and macro ways. And so it's difficult to be a man uh, and using your power in a way that is constructive to the people around you, right. including other men who may actually be poor and maybe have a job that's dependent on your decision. Right, uh, women, gay men, um, pe pe transgender people, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. to how do we be ethical when the shareholders and the stock exchange and the golden parachute that awaits me if I make this right. unethical decision that I get a slap on the wrist for for white collar crime, right, gets me all the gold in the world? It reminds me, oddly, I don't know how this came up, but the the metaphor of, of, of Christ standing on the cliff mm -hmm. and the Satan or whatever you want. I, I'm not going to interpret what that was, but anyway, uh -huh. saying to him, I'll give you the kingdom. I'll give you the riches of the world. If you, if you follow me Yes. and him say, you know, no, I need to go about my work. And of course, if people read the historical, they'll see there was a lot of really good work being done in uh, the historical context. I won't go into the religious context because yeah. it's different. Um, but that we're, the men, you, I mean, I just see this all the time. The headline is uh, CEO does terribly unethical thing, lays off hundreds of workers, insulin prices skyrocket, 
Sears closes, whatever yeah. venture capitalists buy up this business and gut it because they could sell it. I mean, uh, what's the, there, I just read an article last night. Uh, there's a furniture company that's all over the Midwest yeah. and it was bought by venture capital three years ago. And there's one right here in Grand Rapids. It was actually started in Grand Rapids. And yeah. I read this morning, venture capital has decided to gut, liquidate and sell. So wow. 96 stores are closing. I'm not mm -hmm. saying that it maybe needed to be closed. I don't know. I'm not on the inside books, but this is a reward. I mean, this is, this is helping people get rich. And so it's a tough decision because we are in a postmodern world. Things are very complicated. And a lot of people don't understand how economics affects the rest of the community. But how is it to be a man and stand up when in the boardroom and in the stockholder room, your decisions are private? I was also thinking from what you said, when you have a big pot of gold waiting for you, what do you choose? And I've worked with many male clients that work for large corporations that get bonuses that I'm so envious of because I work for myself. I don't get anything like that. <laughs> but they work their tail off and yeah. they're not happy. Oh. And the level of stress and the level of physical symptoms in their body that's eating them up is a life that is so challenging and they're stuck in this corporate rat race because there's a half a million or a million dollars waiting for them two or three years down the road and they decide well i'm going to hold out and even though i'm not happy i'm going to do it because it's going to get me to a great place and again part of me feels envious that i wish i could be compensated for my work in a way like that but at the same time i feel so fortunate that I've made choices to live a life that makes and brings me happiness and that I get paid well for what I do, but uh, I feel fortunate to be this happy, uh, to appreciate what happiness means, to work with people on a level that's so honest that it is about vulnerability, communication, acceptance. There's nothing more rewarding than that. I think you've got a very good point. I'm glad you shared it from a personal thing. But what is, somebody told me the other week, health is wealth. If you don't, if you have wealth and no health, you've got nothing. That's right. And so I remember a friend of mine who used to work for Goldman Sachs yeah. for 15 years and he gained weight, he yeah. was miserable, he yeah. lost his hair, he yeah. couldn't sustain a relationship, but he sure had a lot of money <laughs> and he quit. Thank yeah. goodness. And now he's doing amazing work. But um, he told me, he said, I was sacrificing my body mm -hmm. and my happiness to be able yeah. to have this position in uh, Manhattan and on Wall Street. He actually works right there. And everyone has a choice. We don't, I think that's one thing about therapy and, and working with mentors and community groups is opening your mind to choices. And I, I'm also glad that I chose this career mm -hmm. of being a therapist and working in psychology because I, I get to feel good about what I do. Yeah. I feel like I'm helping the world, even if it's person by person. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and those people can have a ripple effect because they're involved in, I'm involved in economics minorly, you know, I'm collecting kind of exciting for insurance companies or whatever, you know, so, but they are possibly bigger players. And so how do we, whatever's going on internally, if we don't take care of it, it confronts us in the world as, as we call it fate. Yes. But really, what's going on if we don't confront what's going inside of us as men 
what is that going to affect the ecosystem? Yes. And the greater human story and the planet, mm -hmm. which we all share, which yep. is now becoming a, a concept people are understanding that we are all living on a planet that we share that's an, a living organism mm -hmm. and that we might need to pay attention to what we're doing and how we're splitting up resources and how we're sharing for the health of everyone. So. When you were talking, I was thinking about in the 1980s, I worked for corporations and the work that I did is I would be available to corporate executives who were having personal issues and they would see me as a therapist for sometimes one session, three sessions, up to eight sessions. And the premise was that by seeing me, their mental health needs would be tended to and their work productivity would increase. So what I saw were a, was a subset of the population that I wouldn't have necessarily had access to. I was seeing banking executives, business executives of, of all sorts. This was in downtown Boston who had huge careers and they would come to my office wearing their suits, buttoned up, you know, kind of stereotypically masculine, and they would begin to talk about what was going on in their lives. And for me, it was such an education. It was like, oh my God, career success and wealth doesn't make life any different. A person is a person and the struggles of home, of communication, of family, the struggles of communication in the workplace basically are the same for everyone, no matter what they're wearing. So that was a little bit of an educational experience for me. And it would be interesting now if I had the same position to go back and to work with some of these men to know how would I feel different and how would I use myself differently with what I know now about life and with my own masculinity being where it is now, maybe I could have been more effective with these people. I love that reflection, and it's true. Um, we live in a culture that fears missing out, mm -hmm. and you can see that in the social media and also in the entertainment news. Yep. Um, I read, I accidentally clicked, I, I'll, I'm not lying, I clicked on it. Okay, <laughs> Kylie Jenner went with her girlfriend to an island and they uh -huh. rented an Airbnb that was $10,000 a night. Wow, not bad. And I said, well, that's a lot of money for an Airbnb. I think I would have got, if I was Kylie Jenner, I would have gotten a $1,000 one and spent my money elsewhere, but I'm not Kylie Jenner, so I can't really make that choice. But then the article went on to say, the 10-room mansion on this island was a perfect setup for more Instagram shoots, which she uh -huh. then posted to her Instagram to make more money. It was just such a weird thing. But I was thinking about it and, you know, Instagram and these social medias and you're not seeing what's really going on. That's right. We don't, I have no idea what's going on in her life. I hardly know who she is. Right. I just was sitting somewhere and clicked on an article because I don't. And, and we all are suckers. I'm on Instagram and I love it and I get caught up on comparing my life to other people's lives and feeling like I'm not doing it right and I'm not as big as so-and-so. And then there are these male figures on Instagram. A lot of them are leading groups and movements and some of them are coaches, some mm -hmm. of them are psychotherapists. 
And uh, again, I'm comparing myself thinking I'm not doing enough. I wish I were doing more. But simultaneously, I'm also watching how some of these men are utilizing their own power and charisma to attract a following and doing very well for themselves. So it's an interesting world that we live in. And with social media, people have access to promoting themselves in ways that that's free, um, that they didn't have before. That's true. And so we can use this. Technology can be our, our biggest you know, detriment, but also a wonderful way to bring community together. So if you want to lead men's retreats, just let me know. I'll, okay. I'll help. Uh, my Instagram agent. Uh, there you go. I'll help you uh, start that up. Maybe we can get a movement going. Uh, because I definitely think there needs to be one. And I, I, want, I want to make sure I talk a little bit more about your experience. So I've been reading your book, Unwrapped, Integrative ah. Therapy with Gay Men, The Gift of Presence. Yes. And I got this at the uh, Erickson conference. Yeah. And I wanted to throw a few things that stuck out to me. Great. Up and, and you could comment on them. I'm just going to read this one. This one stuck out to me. Um, Page five, all too often, gays are lumped together with lesbian, bisexual, transgendered, and queer people. The LGBTQ acronym is a liberal, politically correct way of referring to the group at large in a group in a quick, succinct way to be inclusive. However, each group has issues of its own, different from the others, and based on their own history, gay men have a particular cluster of issues. The expectations that come from the gay community and from society in general also create certain pressures. The details and uniqueness of these issues are spelled out in this book. Reading this book will give you access to a host of insider tips, both from the perspective of a gay male and from a psychotherapist with 30 years of experience in working with gay men. And then you keep talking about kind of laying it out. But that stuck out to me. I don't know, just the, that, that you're right, we're grouping together. This, right. this is like giant group of people that may not have anything in common except right. that the norm or the hetero group has decided to throw them all in a pot because they don't fit into the hetero group. Right. Is that, can you comment on that? Well, yeah. First of all, you make me sound smart from reading that. That sounds great. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> Audiobook coming soon. Okay. What I say at conferences is that gay boys growing up have their own unique development. Girls who grow up that are lesbians have their own unique development. So if you take these different groups of people and you lump them together and you do one workshop that's 60 minutes long or 120 minutes long, how are you possibly going to cover everything? And uh, until very recently, and still many conferences have no LGBTQ references at all. And so my experience has been, as I said, many people don't show up to my workshops. Frequently, my workshops are put on the last day, Sunday afternoon, at the end of a conference, um, so that the conference is doing what they need to be by offering diverse and inclusive education. But why aren't they putting me earlier in a day when more people are still at the conference and can show up. And uh, I've been at other conferences where a lesbian speaker has been put on at the same time as myself. So that conference attendees have to choose, are they gonna hear her? Are they gonna hear me? And they feel gypped because they may wanna do both. 
Um, so it, it's an interesting thought about who does the organizing, where does education come from, and how can, how can we be represented in greater ways? Frequently, people think of the LGBTQ community as one, and in one way we are because we're underrepresented and we're a minority population, but in another way, it needs to be broken down so people can understand who are the real people? Who are the groups of people? How are we similar? How are we different? I love it. Okay. I, I have no comments except that was a perfect summary Great. of what the, I was trying to get out of. The other thing I wanted to oh, say yes, keep going. is that uh, kids growing up that are either lesbian or gay or transgender and part of minority communities based on their skin color or their culture have a double bind of not fitting in the community that they're being raised in and also not fitting in the mainstream. And it is really, really tough. You were mentioning uh, suicide rates for boys and for men and for women. Youth who are growing up gay and uh, minority populations frequently are much greater risk of, of suicide and mental health issues. And we as a community, need to find ways of educating them, normalizing to them that it's okay, but also working with their families and communities, letting them know that if they have a gay child, that is okay. That just struck me because I actually read an article, now I don't know where I read it, but I did yeah. read it on an airplane, I knew that, yeah. that said, gay youth reported, and it was a suicide was off the charts, yeah. but gay youth in the survey and then through some studies said if they had one yes. um, supportive mm -hmm. mentor, yes, adult mentor in their life, that it decreased the rate of attempted suicide and mental health major crises by 50% or more, something like that. And, and I, I thought... That was the Trevor Project. The Trevor oh, the Trevor Project. Oh, yes. Okay. Incredible research, and they're being quoted all over the media and if you read it on a plane i'm guessing it was after i met you at the conference because i was on a plane i don't remember it might have been delta there was a there was a uh, flight magazine that was addressing lgbtq issues and there were, was a lot of research from the trevor project and i also wanted to mention my mention my other project which is gay sons and mothers oh yes and i'm looking at the emotional relationship between gay boys and their mothers or gay men and their mothers and frequently mothers are the ones who help their kids feel okay in the world so with this project gay sons and mothers were actually rewarding moms for supporting their kids for making their kids world more safe and so the mentors that are out there don't just have to work with youth they can also work with mothers letting them know that they need to support their kids so that their kids can be healthy, vibrant, and strong. I love that. And that, I'm going to post that link in the show notes for your, right. your gay sons and mothers, and I'll post right. everything about you that we right. can dig up okay. uh, in the yeah. show notes so listeners can, can right. and know more. And the Trevor Project, I think I need to throw that in there as well. Absolutely. It's a I great, didn't know what I was quoting, great. but I read the article. There's, I wanted to say... I, I love this book so far uh, from what I've read uh, because not only does it speak to gay men and the issues of growing up 
uh, gay and everything else and, and how to work in therapy specifically. But it also is so universal in a, in a very positive way of how to work with men and even women in general. I found some of the concepts just, just startlingly um, like useful to me. Well, I really appreciate hearing that because yeah. there is something about growing up feeling different that is a universal experience. And so if I'm conveying something about that to my readers, it makes me really, really happy. I, I, I think you are. And also with the Gay Sons and Mothers Project, I, I think that premise and, and, and drawing it out because it, you know, it is a minority group and there is you know, stigmas attached, but just think about this for just a moment, just in my work with you know, um, not, you know, non-gay children and their mothers and their fathers, it's how do we help the parent create a safe and healthy environment where this child is able to grow into the person that they want to be or, or is inside of them instead of trying to stamp them or That's mold right. them in two, two, because we have to have boundaries. Let's, mm-hmm. <laughs> let's, yeah. We have to have boundaries for safety yeah. and, you know, whatever. But how do we, how do we help parents balance that with the, the notion that they can trust that with the right environment and, and the right amount of boundaries that their child will grow into the person they're meant to be. And especially uh, gay children oftentimes face um, not only, uh, so hetero children are facing, well, why aren't you more like this? Or why aren't you more like that? Or why don't you, why are you, you know, getting better grades or whatever it is? And I, I can see gay children facing, uh, well, why aren't, why don't you have a date to the prom that's a girl or, 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 or you know, why, why are you listening to this music? And even further, and then I was thinking of a triple bind, because then the minority double bind, mm-hmm. a, 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 let's say a, a, a ethnic minority, yeah, an Asian gay boy. Yeah. Yeah. Then let's add on the third triad. So let's say he's uh, not progressive Christian, but evangelical Christian, mm-hmm. a triple bind situation, yeah. where yeah. they actually might send you to some, I don't, I would call it torture, uh, conversion yes. therapy, which is, yes. I, I can't believe the word therapy is included, but it's been banned in many states and I'll keep supporting right. bans. Uh, essentially, an insane idea that you can brainwash somebody into being somebody else. Um, I guess we, in school and the media, does slightly brainwash people, but it's not this harsh. Not okay, This isn't torture. So, uh, the yeah. mind, I mean, goodness, those, those children have so much to face. Uh, in I, their, or Mormon gay youth. I mean, yes. think about that. I've done a lot of work with the Mormon community. It's been fascinating with Mormon mothers who have found a way to leave the church in support of their children, which is absolutely incredible. But I also was going to comment that I'm friendly with a gay man who's in his 40s that asked his parents to send him to conversion therapy. He said, I drank the Kool-Aid. I bought into this church stuff, and I, I really hoped that I could change. And he went through conversion therapy and ended up falling in love with a man within six months and came out and his parents basically disowned him. Um, oh, no. Worked and spoken with other people who went to conversion therapy, grew up in the South whose parents forced them to. And one guy faked his way through conversion therapy. He lied to the person that he was working with, pretending to be straightened out just to get himself out of there. 
And then I know someone else who split. He left his parents' house and ran away to avoid having to go to conversion therapy. So, and these, by the way, are young men, men in their 30s. So it's, oh my goodness. it's not antiquated. And there are still pastors and priests out there that are doing conversion therapy. So even though it's outlawed in certain states, people are doing it privately anyways. It's just dreadful and scary. But I'm relieved that the mental health community recognizes it as uh, immoral and that it's publicized as such so that it's happening way less than it used to. I'm, you have a great way of summarizing things. I can see why you're an excellent presenter. That's how I, I learned to teach, I guess. <laughs> I'm going to, I, I, I want to cover just a couple more things before I let you get yeah. on with your day here. But you, so in the book, you do talk about some of the progress that's been happening in the United States for gay people to be accepted and, you know, gay marriage being legalized uh, and different things like that. But, um, and, and, and about how some, some children have the um, good fortune of some families recognizing it and actually learning, you know, how to help them. I know that there's, um, what is it, parents? P flag, wait. P flag, parents and friends. And friends of, gays. yes, yeah. of lesbians, yes. Great group. And they, yeah. they actually have those at schools around where I'm at. And actually some of the more progressive churches have that group as well, which is really yes. cool. And um, high schools and junior high schools also have their own groups for supporting students, which is incredible because oh. nothing like that was out there when I was growing up. Yeah, the ally groups, I think yeah. they have. Um, but I, I then I want to read this from your book. So despite this progress or whatever, I've inserted that word, yeah. many gay men have, had, have not had the good fortune to grow up in an accepting atmosphere and continue to experience conflict internally and externally. Of course, pain is not unique to gay men. However, the specific reasons that they experience pain and the ways in which they deal or do not deal with it are unique. The history and personal development of gay males is different than it is for everyone else, including minorities who at least have the support of their families and communities since they are often so often part of the same minority. The sense of alienation that has ex is experienced is strikingly similar among gay men. My own experience of growing up gay and my current identity questions and self-esteem issues are all remarkably resonant with my gay male clients. The combination of gender expectations and self-introjections from society impose a heavy load to be carried even now. A little bit more. The fact that a man has come out of the closet doesn't mean the journey is over. Often, the undertones of sadness linger for a very long time. The power of experiential work therapy, I inserted that word, mm -hmm. with gay men lies in part in providing an opportunity for these men to lovingly and affirmatively come back into their, to the body as a safe place, to be present with everything as it is, and to move away, move into the future in an open way. Even though Foliage on a tree may appear intact. The root system is the most important part of vitality and longevity. It is the part that cannot be seen because it is underground. The challenge of psychotherapy with gay males is to appreciate the causes of damage to the root system and to know the best ways of helping to make repairs. It is never too late to make change. Providing a healthy environment ensures an essential growing pace. Plate space. <laughs> oh goodness! <laughs> Providing a healthy environment ensures an essential growing space in which to expand and flourish. Mm. Comments by Rick. <laughs> well, I wanted to say one thing. What I'm alluding to there, other than what was obvious, is that I do a lot of work 
using hypnosis with people. And hypnosis is utilizing mindfulness techniques in the body. And interestingly enough, and not surprisingly, many gay men have learned to dissociate from their bodies because uh, that's how we coped and survived. So many people are living life in a limited sphere. And so I'm asking people to go inside of themselves to use their intuition, their wisdom, to listen to what they're feeling, to use physical and sensory parts of themselves in their own healing. And frequently when people have shut themselves off from this part of themselves, it's a frightening prospect to do this kind of work. And when they do, it's like magic. Suddenly they can rely on themselves, they can trust their own experiences, they can access a strength within themselves that is so profound and so healing. So it's amazingly exciting to watch this happen. I love that because I was just, I, one of the closing things I wanted to talk about for the last maybe four minutes or five minutes or whatever was um, about the experiential realm. So getting back into the therapy, you talk about uh, using all these different exercises, uh, hypnosis, mindfulness, experiential type therapies, which are not just talking about it because we often live in our heads and mm -hmm. we can talk ourselves into right. beating the dead horse and nothing changes. So how do we experience happiness? How do we change how we feel in the body ah. in our emotions? And you're into the Ericksonian yes. uh, groups and approach. And I love this little quote here. Uh, I think it was, I'm actually going to read a different quote than I was going okay. to. In earlier times, therapy was relegated to contact with the client's past and digging up painful, unpleasant materials in order to appreciate what caused the damage. In fact, patients have a host of positive memories that can be accessed and utilized as resources. It is refreshing for a gay male to have a positive focus in his treatment since so much of his life has been secretive or viewed even by him as pathology-based. Last little bit. Happiness is an experiential reality. That's from Jeff Sag. Mm -hmm. Therapy is the reassociation of an internal life, and this can happen quickly and easily. It is always exciting to do experiential work with clients who feel stuck and to see the difference, sometimes instantaneously. Learning from the inside out is what makes experiential work successful. Gay men are often so busy living from the outside in. Uh, I just wanted to comment that frequently I get clients that have been in therapy for years and they come and they sit down and they say, well, it all started with my mother. And then they <laughs> go on a long psycho babble description of life. And at this point, sometimes people can just land in our offices and we can get to work through doing experiential work, which is giving them a different self reference point and it can bypass having to go through all the nuances of psychodynamic psychotherapy which i still do and i still love but you can take a more direct route to get somewhere a lot faster and that is truly exciting to me i love experiential therapy i do emdr and ego state and i kind of have weaved in some ericksonian stuff but i have not i've been wanting every year to go to the ericksonian hypnosis training and i've only gone to some of the basic workshops it. so, totally so can you, as we summarize rick i you're awesome i love the books i love the conferences but i know that you you know 
you are a very humble person. And I know that I haven't allowed much of that in this podcast, but I know that you owe some of your expertise to this learning. So can you tell yeah. us just as a little brief thing for therapists who want to learn more about how did you get all of this experience? How did you get all this knowledge, Rick? Where, where were some of your best learning points and, and uh, groups and books and things? Well, uh, my learning comes from conferences. I mean, I love to read as well, but I love learning from the masters. So I've been active in the group therapy world, and then I got active in the Erickson, Ericksonian world. Like you said, the Milton Erickson Foundation sponsors incredible conferences with incredible speakers. One conference is the Evolution of Psychotherapy. It is so great. It's led every two years, or is it every three years? I'm not sure. I think it's every two or three, but it is happening this December Yes. yes. in Anaheim, yes. 2020. I will look I think you. I want to go. Are you going to go? Sign up now. I will be there. I'll be helping. It's amazing. And so we're back to learning from our mentors. Going to conferences, watching mentors has been a great source of learning. And then I keep going back for more. So I've done specialized trainings with the people that I respect the most. And that's how I've grown. And now I'm landing in my own place where I'm beginning to share what I've learned with younger people and younger clinicians. And it's really, really exciting. I love it because it's back to the community and it's back to the mentors and us therapists. I, I work in a group clinic, but a lot of therapists work in isolation yep. um, and maybe they go see a friend group for supervision or something. But I would say out there to all the therapists that are listening, get to a conference. Go. Meet people. Things Meet happen. Good face Hang out. Face. Yeah. I'm going to try to make it happen that I'm in the evolution, at least for the couple of days this year. And I would say one of the evolution of psychotherapy inspired me so much in 2010, I believe, yeah. or 2011. I was able to meet Yalom. I was able to see yeah. James Hillman before Amazing. he died. Yeah. I mean, so uh, now this year, what's that? Transformational. Yes, transformational. And, and, and for people out there that aren't into psychotherapy, Go find a conference that you're into. Go find a mentor. It's so important. Or mentor someone. So, uh, Rick, I'm so glad to have you on the show. It's Wonderful. amazing. I really hope people read your books, Unwrapped. And what's the other book called? Uh, the other book, I can't believe, I'm, is called Mindfulness Tools for Gay Men in Therapy. It's a workbook. And if even if you don't work with many gay men in, in your office, I would recommend these books. They're Absolutely. very readable. I blew through, you know, almost about half of your book in like half a day. So yeah. it is very readable and it's um, good stuff. And Rick, we're going to have your website so people can see the events you're going to be doing and the Gay Sons and Mothers Project as well. Um, lots of good stuff. So, Thank you so thanks much. so much. It's been a pleasure to, to speak with you, and I look forward to you and I meeting up at conferences. It, it is a plan. We will, okay. we will hang out, at, uh, hopefully at the Evolution or another one, great. and we'll, we'll grab coffee. That'll be great. Thanks a lot. Okay. You're Thank welcome. You. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. And there you have it. This has been another episode of the Intentional Clinician Podcast. If you're enjoying it, please share it with people you know. I would surely appreciate it. I really enjoyed my conversation with Rick Miller, and I hope you did too. Uh, I would definitely recommend picking up his book or coming to see Rick at one of the conferences, such as the Evolution of Psychotherapy Conference 
in Anaheim, California in December of 2020. I apologize uh, for the audio. I realized that one of my mics was not working during that episode, and so apparently the audio went directly into my headphones, which was scratching my beard. So if you wondered what that weird sound was, that was a beard making a noise. I apologize. Uh, I will make sure that doesn't happen again, but I did not want to re-record that interview as I really enjoyed it. If you enjoyed that interview, I did another interview with Adam Nash, which was episode 37, Authentic Masculinity in the Second Half of Life, and that is another episode covering uh, topics around men. And I have another episode coming up shortly, which will be a conversation uh, about men and masculinity in our culture, more on a broad spectrum with Ramon Farley. Now, in these episodes about men, again, we're not claiming to have the definitive answers, but we do believe discussions are important, and that's why I put together a long-form podcast. I'm just trying to get our thoughts out there, as I believe men need to be having conversations about these topics, um, especially in the United States and Europe at this time. Those are the two cultures I'm most familiar with. So, if you're interested in becoming a guest on The Intentional Clinician, I have been getting some submissions. People have been sending me books and different ideas, so feel free to send me an email about that. Until next time, I wish you all a safe and peaceful week. If you are looking for an Emdria consultant, I am now an EMDR International Association Consultant in Training, and I can provide 15 of the 20 hours needed to become an EMDRIA certified. As soon as I'm EMDRIA Consultant certified, then I can certify everyone with all 20 hours. So I'm starting EMDRIA consultation groups, both online and in person. For details, check out counselingsupervisorgr.com or healthforlifegr.com, or just send me an email in the show notes. The Michigan Mental Health Counselors Association is working to increase the availability of quality mental health services statewide, increasing education among the public, promoting best practices among clinicians, and working to keep licensed professional counselors and other professionals accessible by the public. For more information on them, you can check them out on the internet in the show notes and check out episode 32 and 33 to understand why supporting your local counseling organization is important. The recording you just listened to consists of the personal opinions of Paul Krauss and his guest, and while these opinions are based upon literature they have read and their experience in the field, these opinions should not be viewed as a definitive opinion on any subject. Listening to this podcast is not a substitute for treatment. If you are in crisis, please dial 911 or the National Suicide Prevention Line at 1-800-273-8255. If you are in need of counseling, do not hesitate to make an appointment with a local counselor in your area. You can also make an appointment with the excellent clinicians in the Grand Rapids area at Health for Life Grand Rapids and the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids by visiting healthforlifegr.com or, if you're a person who likes phone calls, 616-200-4433. Thanks so much. This has been Paul Krauss. I'm the clinical director at Health for Life Grand Rapids and the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids. And I will be sending podcasts out to you, hopefully, every month from here on out. Thanks so much for your support. Different things to me. Do you believe in what you say? There doesn't seem to be
Thank you.